Good morning. Opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. Over the last couple of weeks, we've considered what Jesus was teaching Peter, James, and John at the Mountain of Transfiguration. By being transfigured in front of them so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light, Jesus was displaying his inherent glory. Jesus was no mere man. Although that glory had always been veiled in his flesh, Jesus, as the God-man, shined with the glory of God from within his own person. At the transfiguration, that internal glory shined through the veil of Jesus' flesh, and the two most prominent figures in the Old Testament appeared before Jesus in a vision. Unlike Jesus, they weren't shining at all, were they? Moses, who represented the law, and Elijah, who represented the prophets, who always called the kings back to the law to bring about national restoration, appeared before Jesus. And Jesus talked with them about the exodus that he was about to perform. Talking to Moses, who had represented the old covenant, about the exodus. I'm doing something different. A greater exodus than what you did. Everything that Moses and Elijah had longed to see would come to fruition through the ministry of Jesus. What Moses and Elijah had prefigured through their ministries for Israel in the Old Covenant, Jesus, as the true Israel, would accomplish for the benefit of the whole world in the New Covenant. But as we saw last week, Peter, James, and John, they, they watched this happen, listened to the conversation, and they still didn't get it. The religious leaders at that time had taught that prior to the reign of the Messiah, Elijah would come back from heaven and call the people back to the covenant promises that were inherent to Moses' law. Elijah would then lead a final end times fulfillment of the festival of booths that would remind Israel of how God brought them out of Egypt, how they dwelled in tents for 40 years under Moses, and how that God ultimately placed them in the land that he had promised them. The belief was that the people would hear Elijah this time and that they would repent. Unlike the first time he was there calling them to the law, they would hear this time. They would repent. God would renew His covenant and the Messiah would begin His never-ending reign with Israel being the superpower over all of the nations of the earth. That was their expectation. When Peter, James, and John saw the gloriously transfigured Jesus, who they recognized to be, what did Peter say in chapter 16? The Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, here's the king. And Moses, whose law was central to the promises of the the Old Covenant. And Elijah, who the Old Testament said would come to prepare the way of the Lord, they reverted to the traditional interpretation of the Messianic age, even though that interpretation contradicted what Jesus had told them. So Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, we'll make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter made this suggestion rooted in his expectation of covenant renewal for Israel instead of believing Jesus that he was going to do something completely new and establish a new ecclesia, a new gathered people of God. But while Peter was still speaking, the father voiced his stern displeasure by correcting the heart of this full-hearted suggestion. He says, this is my beloved son. Israel's not my son that came out of Egypt. No, this, Jesus, in front of you, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The takeaway, there would be no covenant renewal for the nation of Israel. It was to Jesus, the true Son, that the covenant promises belonged. And every man must listen and trust in Him. You want the promises of God? Trust in Jesus. Be plugged into Jesus, the the true root of all these promises. And in Matthew 17, 6-8, the disciples, they were terrified when God corrected them. But Jesus tenderly went over to them, touched them, and comforted them instructing them to get up and not be afraid. After this whole ordeal, who did the disciples see? 
Uh, well, they saw no more old covenant figures, did they? 17.8, lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. He could have just said Jesus, but he want, he's doing this for emphasis. He says all three words. He saw Jesus, Jesus himself, and Jesus himself alone. Talk about sola Christos, right? And that takes us to one last section that helps us understand and interpret the transfiguration. As we mentioned last week, misunderstandings and misinterpretations are difficult to recognize, more or less overcome. When you hold to a viewpoint, you, you, you hold to it and you think you're right, or you wouldn't hold to it. So you think you're right. It's hard to even recognize you're wrong. It's how you're completely wired to think. So these mis mis misunderstandings and misinterpretations are difficult to recognize, more or less overcome. They become deeply held presuppositions that keep us from rightly understanding what we're seeing, hearing, or reading in the Scriptures. The disciples had those deeply held faulty presuppositions concerning the nature of the kingdom. So Jesus takes the opportunity of coming uh, down from the mountain to once again bring clarity to the transfiguration that they were so blessed to see. Uh, before we even get into the sermon, guys, maximize your time. Look for opportunities to sneak little times of teaching and Bible discussion in. They even used the trip down from the mountain that he took them up to to clarify even more. And we see that in Matthew 17, 9 through 13. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. I'm just going to have two points with some subpoints underneath those. But we're going to see Jesus does some reiteration of things he's already taught and then some clarifications of some of their misunderstandings. So let's look at these reiterations in verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. A few points jump out at us from verse 9. Don't tell who he is. Matthew has made it obvious that the transfiguration was for the benefit of Peter the Rock, of James and John, the sons of thunder. He wanted them to know and he didn't want everybody else to be told about it. It reminds you of right after the great confession and Jesus responds to Peter saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. But you are Peter, upon this rock I build my church, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And right after that, what does Jesus tell Peter and, and all the disciples? Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. He, he's moving away from his public ministry. He's no longer trying to minister to the public. That's no longer where his focus is. He's ministering to this little group of disciples because by and large, the, the masses and especially the leaders have rejected Jesus' ministry. They have refused to repent despite all of the miracles that they've seen. And he's turning his attention to his disciples because what's going to happen is now a foregone conclusion. There's not going to be wholesale repentance there's going to be rejection. Jesus had deliberately taken only these three disciples up the mountain to experience this vision because they were strong, unshakable men. But strong, strong unshakable men are more of an, a liability than an asset if they're strong and unshakable in the wrong opinion or for the wrong cause, aren't they? The greatest cult leaders that this world has ever seen were charismatic men zealous men, aggressive and persuasive men. They were men like Peter, James, and John. But, as we've seen in past sermons, and as we'll see more evidence of today, they didn't just, Peter, James, and John didn't just misunderstand the nature of the kingdom, but how that the path of the cross was essential in ushering it in. Jesus had allowed them to see a vision that illustrated the fading nature of the old covenant, 
They misunderstood the vision and the Father Himself terrifyingly corrected their misunderstanding by manifesting Himself in the glory cloud and thunderously correcting their misunderstanding with a voice out of heaven. And isn't that the kind of thing that a feller might want to tell his buddies about? It is, isn't it? But Jesus says, no, tell the vision to no one. These three most zealous, eager, aggressive, uh, eager, aggressive disciples are to put a lid on it. And the reason for that is that if you don't know what you're talking about or don't really understand yet, you don't need to be teaching. Peter, James, and John, are they good men or bad men? They're good men. Are they strong, unshakable men? Yes. Are they zealous men? Yes. Are they gifted men? Yes. Are they ready to be in public ministry yet? No. They didn't understand. And if they didn't understand and they twisted this... You know, they they told of this event, but they told of it wrongly. And they got people thinking the same way that they had been thinking while they were on the mountain. What would the people do if they heard that Moses and Elijah had had appeared to Jesus and Jesus had transfigured before them? Well, probably even greater than what they did when Jesus fed the masses, fed the 5,000, and they tried to take him by force and make him king, right? That wasn't the plan. The plan wasn't for the masses to have this massive revival because of external shows. The plan was for Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus has transitioned his ministry from public proclamation to the masses to investment in his disciples. He doesn't need positive attention by taking him by force and making him king. He doesn't need negative attention by them trying to kill him before his hour has come. He's walking in the Spirit and revealing exactly what the Father wants the people to know. He doesn't want these yet-to-be Spirit-filled disciples bungling it up by ministering according to their own carnal understanding. When the proper time arrives, which is what? After the Son of Man's resurrection, the story of the transfiguration can, will, and must be proclaimed. In fact, the crucifixion and resurrection will shed the necessary light on it to make sure that they do rightly understand it. You can hear something, but doesn't it take time before you really get it, before you season in it? And that's what they needed. And that... The fact that Jesus was going to die and the Jews would not repent would become clear to them when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. That's the part that the disciples have consistently had a problem with, isn't it? It just didn't fit their messianic expectations. Jesus has been clear throughout the book of Matthew that this generation of Jews was going to reject Him and that He would uh, usher in a kingdom composed of Jew and Gentile alike. We could chase that thread throughout the book of Matthew, but you remember, don't you? We've been in Matthew for a while now. We've touched that a lot. But they still didn't get it. After Peter's confession, just in our current context, he tells Peter, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, my my ecclesia, my collection of the people of God. Not national Israel that had always referred to themselves as the ecclesia, but Jesus was going to build his ecclesia on the rock of just these apostles, just these twelve men. And the gates of hell would not overpower it. That he would give them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven. Whatever they loosed in earth would be loosed in heaven. And then he warned them not to tell anybody in 1620. And from that time on, Jesus began to tell the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again on the third day. And what did Peter do? Remember? He took him aside and said, God forbid it, Lord, began to rebuke Jesus. This will never happen to you. To the point that Jesus had to respond by by telling Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. That you're setting your mind on God's, not on God's interests, but man's. They've already told, he's already told Peter, I have to die. He's reiterated it already through this vision of the transfiguration and God himself thundering from the clouds that there's not going to be covenant renewal. Don't build tabernacles. That's not happening. The way you've got it figured in your head, that's not it. But now we got Jesus reiterating it again. Guys, I want to point out, repetition's important. You ever get tired of teaching the same thing? 
over and over and over again. Do you ever get frustrated with disciples, with people you're trying to disciple and teach that seem to keep going back to faulty, to, to misunderstandings that they've had, that they've held their entire life, going back to traditions and, and things that have no grounding in the Bible, but it's what they've always, always thought. Guys, you're in good company. That's what Jesus did. But he was patient with his disciples. He told them. He showed them. They still didn't get it. And he told them again, didn't he? Have you ever had to be told many times? Of course you have. Let's remember that and let's be patient. Let's realize that we've got things still wrong that we're needing to grow out of so that we're always humble. And let's also realize that the people we're trying to disciple that aren't as far along as we are, that... It's hard to come out of old ideas. We've had a hard time with it, and they will as well. So we should be patient. We should be humble, and we should be patient. And again, he reiterates that the Son of Man must rise from the dead. Our lack of familiarity with Jesus' use of the title Son of Man hinders us from understanding what Jesus is saying as much as their misinterpretation of Daniel 7 had had hindered theirs. When we hear Son of Man... Even though I've talked about it so much, how many have noticed we have hit Daniel 7 a lot over the last few months? But that's the, that's, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, Daniel 7 is what he has in mind. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. You probably have it memorized from hearing it so often. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. This is after the crucifixion. The leaders of this age who killed Jesus have condemned themselves and are awaiting judgment. But as for this Son of Man, He was presented before the Ancient of Days. He ascended to the presence of the Ancient of Days and was joyfully received. And to Him was given glory and a kingdom. A kingdom composed of Jews? No. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It's clear as day in Daniel 7, but yet He calls Himself Son of Man again and again and again, showing them there's not going to be covenant renewal and national dominance of Israel over all the other nations. No, the Son of Man is going to receive a kingdom that encompasses all the nations. We see that at the end of the book of Matthew, don't we? With all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. But the Son of Man had to rise from the dead for that to happen, to be presented before the Ancient of Days. Judgment had to come on the old covenant people before the new covenant people of all nations could be established. Turn with me to Acts 7, 51-56. After Jesus rose from the dead, they understood this. And we see Stephen preaching about it right before he's stoned to death. In Acts 7, 51-56. And Stephen tells these Jewish leaders and these Jewish people here, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's, look at that uncircumcised in heart and ears. You're circumcised externally. You think you're the covenant people of God, but you're uncircumcised of heart and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. So he connects it to the line of people who have rejected all of the prophets. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, angels, yet you did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. He points out, you're covenant breakers. You've rejected all the promises of God. They're cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This Son of Man is now standing waiting to bring judgment on you people. And they still wouldn't repent. Even at that warning of a spirit-filled Stephen, they took up stones and stoned him to death. Jesus is warning. Hey, I mean, Stephen here is warning. You're rejectors. You're covenant. You You rejected the righteous one. You are uncircumcised of heart. You're not God's people. And this son of man figure is receiving a kingdom and he's going to judge all of you. And they still would repent. But at this time, 
when Jesus is saying this to these disciples that are coming off the mountain of transfiguration, they still don't get it. Which is obviously why they're told not to tell anybody about the transfiguration until the Son of Man had risen from the dead to show that they, and, and to show that they still don't shake their tradition, what do they ask? They ask for clarification. And look at this question that they ask. Verse 10. His disciples asked him, Why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why then? He says, so, so if what you're saying is true, let me paraphrase. So if what you're saying is true, that the Son of Man has to rise from the dead, and we don't need to tell anybody until that's happened. If what you're saying is true, if you must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed like you told us six days ago, if the, Son of, if the Messiah is not going to be accepted by his very own people, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? A couple of things I want to point out is they assume the same experts as everyone else. Look, why do the scribes say? They, rever- they, they, they look back to what the scribes have taught. And the scribes they see as experts. The scribes were the ex- accepted experts in Scripture. We know that from Matthew 2, uh, 4 through 5, when the Magi came at, to King Herod, and they said, Where is he that's born King of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east, and we've came to worship him. And Herod said what? Herod said, go get the scribes. They can tell us where he's supposed to be born. And then they knew the scriptures well enough to say the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. They were the accepted experts. You want to know something about the Bible? Everybody thought, go ask the scribes, didn't they? Later in 23, verses 2 through 3, the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, have seated themselves in Moses' chair. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. So Jesus later shows again how they've been accepted by the masses as experts in Scripture. The disciples clearly still accept them as experts as well. Why though? Because everyone else does. Hey, guys, we've got to be careful with that. The most popular preachers that everybody else accepts, and people will, you'll be telling them, hey, the te- Scriptures teach this, and then they'll cite, well, Billy Graham said this. Billy Graham also said there was many ways to heaven and that Jesus wasn't essential for salvation. Do we need to accept what, what somebody says because, well, they're the expert, they're the look-to experts? The religious leaders that everybody else looks to? As a matter of fact, the religious leaders that everybody else looks to often are the most dangerous leaders to look to, aren't they? Your Joel Osteen's, your T.D. Jakes, or your Paula Watts, or your, um, I could go on and on, Russell Moore's. Or even these days, if you start listening much, you'll notice how far off the rails David Platt and Matt Chandler have gone. you got your experts, and you can teach something well, and then they'll cite some expert. Some expert is wrong often. We, got to, we had a sola earlier, sola Christos. We've got to be insistent on sola scriptura as well, don't we? Okay, so they, they assume these same experts. But if they had been listening, then they wouldn't have. How clear did Jesus need to be? Jesus had pointed out already that the bare minimum righteousness for the kingdom exceeds the righteousness of the scribes. Remember that? Except your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. You won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. They, they were the antagonists twice with Jesus already up to this point in the book of Matthew. When Jesus healed the paralytic, the scribes were saying in their heart, this fellow blasphemes because he says he can forgive sins. And in 15, 1 through 13, the scribes were part of this Jerusalem inquisition sent down to find fault with Jesus. And Jesus had just told them six days before that they would be among those who killed him, that the chief priests and the scribes, that he would go to Jerusalem and be, suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes, right? And their elders in 1621. But not only does this question assume the same experts, it also assumes the same interpretation as those experts. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? It's strange enough that the Messiah would die at all, but they seem to, by this point here in our text, to have accepted this truth that Jesus was going to die reluctantly. 
What bothers them now, though, is that it seems like his soon-to-come death would leave messianic prophecy unfulfilled. That's a good concern, isn't it? The scribes misapplied the promise of the coming Elijah as frequently as dispensationalists misapplied texts about the Antichrist. They had it wrong. They rightly quoted Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. They cited that, and it clearly says that the Messiah's coming would be preceded by that of Elijah, doesn't it? In Malachi 4, 5 through 6. They were undoubtedly using this prophecy to prove that Jesus could therefore not be the Christ. The scribes are undoubtedly saying, hey, Jesus can't be the Messiah because Elijah hasn't come yet. Because he hasn't returned. But not only did they wait on Elijah to literally return prior to the Messiah, just like the text in Malachi said... But just like Tim LaHaye's modern fanciful butchering of biblical eschatology, they had taken a bit of creative license concerning how Elijah's return would look. And their imaginative additions were believed with the same passion as the Left Behind series fans await the coming of Nikolai Carpathia or Buck Williams today. We think that you read the... You want to know end times? Read the Left Behind series. That's exactly how it's going to be. And they had put their fanciful spin on this Elijah who was to come the same way that people do that in eschatology today. It's hard to shake them off of it, isn't it? The scribes taught that Elijah would come on the scene performing unfathomable miracles. They believed that this reinvigorated Elijah, who would bring order out of chaos and holiness out of unholiness, that he would change everything before the Messiah came. The expectation that was that when the Messiah arrived, the world, or at least Israel, would be morally and spiritually prepared for him. The Jews would respond in mass to Elijah's miracle-working ministry, which, inst- which would institute a final festival of booths in which they would renew their covenant with Yahweh, and then they would receive the Messiah who would be introduced by the undeniable miracle-working ministry of Elijah. That was their expectation. That's why people thought, who, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some say they are John the Baptist, some Elijah or one of the prophets. You're somebody preparing the way for the Messiah. Why? Well, Jesus is doing miracles. He must be the Elijah because the Messiah can't come until Elijah has set everything in order and there's been this massive repentance from the people. So maybe we should listen to him because he might be pointing us to the Messiah. That was kind of the way that they had taken it. And then, best of all, the Messiah would execute swift judgment on all the enemy nations. That's what they thought. After Israel finally repents, when this true Elijah comes back out of heavens with miracles and we have this last festival of boots to call us back to the covenant promises, Messiah is going to come and execute swift judgment on all of the enemy nations, especially those dirty old Romans. And he'll establish the kingdom of Israel. It was a great story. Left Behind's a great story, too. It just wasn't what the Bible meant. Right? And everyone, including the disciples, had at least at one time, more or less, believed that that's how everything would shake out. So they're puzzled. On the mountain, they had just seen Elijah come to talk with Jesus, and then Elijah was gone, and Jesus was alone there with them. Telling everyone Elijah had come would have eliminated one of the scribes' excuses for not believing on Jesus. But Jesus says, don't tell anybody. You know, that's why they're asking, why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? He came, there's this little secret appearance on the mountain, and you're telling us not to tell anybody he's came, and there's supposed to be this restoration. What, What gives here? The scribes say this is how it's supposed to happen, but he appeared, now he's gone, and you're saying, don't tell anybody? doesn't make any sense, Jesus. And Elijah, Elijah wasn't supposed to show up briefly and leave. He was supposed to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, but he just gone. And Jesus, the Messiah, not only says that he's about to die, 
Not, not, only, not, not only that, but Jesus says that Messiah is about to die instead of staying and executing judgment on his enemies. In view of Malachi's prediction, how is that possible? And where's the great and terrible day of the Lord? That Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which they interpreted of all of their enemies being put under the feet of the Messiah and Israel gaining dominance again. What in the world? Have the scribes simply got all this wrong? They're open to that. I like that, don't you? They, they're like, we thought it was this way. This is what the scribes always say. I think they're open to, maybe we've just got it wrong. But Jesus set us straight. What are we getting wrong? And then we get to the answer that does set it all straight. Are you not glad that when you're confused, you can ask God? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And they go to Jesus and they ask... And Jesus doesn't despise them for asking. He answered and said in verse 11. Surprisingly at first though, he doesn't disagree with the scribes. He restates their expectation with agreement. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Jesus first endorses the scribal teaching. They're looking expectantly to the right scripture, but they fail to recognize its fulfillment. Jesus here cited the scriptural teaching that Elijah would come as the forerunner of, of Jesus and an apocryphal writing that the scribes cited often as part of their messianic expectation. In Sirach 48, 9-11. We don't have this in our Bibles because it ain't Bible, but it is in the Apocrypha, it is in the Catholic Bible. Sirach 48, 9-11. And Jesus is quoting from that here because the scribes quoted from it in line with their expectation for what Elijah's ministry would look like. You are taken up by a whirlwind of fire, it says in Shirosh, in a chariot with horses of fire. At the appointed time it is written, you are destined to calm the wrath of God before it breaks out in fury, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and to restore the tribes of Jacob. Happy are those who saw you and were adorned with your love, for we also shall surely live. Jesus agrees with respect to the sequence of these two comings. First Elijah's, then the Messiah's. They were also right that Elijah had been called in order to bring about a restoration. And their conviction that Elijah coming is a, a divine must. He has to come first because it's part of God's eternal plan as predicted by God's prophet. But they get some stuff terribly wrong as well. Did you know that believing Scripture is of little value if you misinterpret what it's teaching? I believe the Bible cover to cover. I even believe the cover on mine. It has my name on it. And I even believe it all the way over in maps. If you don't know what it's actually teaching, you, you believe a book that you don't understand. And whatever you think you understand could be completely heretical. The Mormons say they believe the Bible. Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe the Bible. But they're cults. They're sub-Christian. You've got to know what it actually teaches, don't you? The tense is, Elijah is coming and he will set. Elijah is coming and will restore all things or will set all things in order. They're of the scribal perspective. He quotes how they said it. They were still looking for the coming of Elijah for his future work of reconciliation. But Jesus uses the past tense in verse 12, which will shatter that future expectation by showing that this event is in the rearview mirror, not in the windshield. It's a past reality, not a future hope. Listen to what Jesus says. It was fulfilled in an unexpected way. He, or Elijah, he already came. But I say to you, verse 12, that Elijah already came. In chapter 5, Jesus states that they've heard it said of old, but then it fact emphatically says, but I say unto you. He would cite what everybody always said all over and over. He did it six times in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? You've heard it said, but I say unto you, but I say unto you. Here he quotes what the scribes say, and now he once again says, but I say unto you. You hear a lot of stuff, but what Jesus' interpretation is is the truth, isn't it? Where Jesus differs from the scribes is not in their reading of the scriptural promise, but in their failure to recognize that it's been fulfilled. The attentive reader of, our, of Matthew already knows where this is going. 
Remember in Matthew 3, 1 through 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. And he quotes from Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the, you know, that's in... Matthew 3, the ministry, the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist, and the disciples should have known well because he had told them explicitly in chapter 11, we see that, that Jesus told them, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. But they didn't listen. They didn't know what they should have known, did they? Either the disciples had not been willing to accept it, says, if you're willing to accept it, John himself as Elijah is to come. Either they hadn't been willing to accept it, or they hadn't been able to understand it, one or the other. One's really bad, the other's not as bad. It's just part of the human condition with our weak, frail minds that it takes us a while to get to things sometimes, doesn't it? Either way, they were still looking for something literal. The account of John's ministry in chapter 3 supplies clear links with the prophecy of Malachi 4, 5 through 6 and its extension of Sirach 48.10. John preached the coming of judgment and warned people to repent so that they would escape its terror. But with his ministry, he had said, if you don't repent, look at 10 through 12, 3, 10 through 12. You can look or you can just remember in Matthew 3, 10 through 12. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barns, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this Elijah already came. So the scribes were making a mistake, and so were Peter, James, and John. They awaited the literal Elijah, the Tishpot person from from the book of Kings. And we have a slight difficulty here because there's a sense in which John the Baptist was not Elijah. I want to point that out real quick too. As Also, there's a sense in which he is Elijah, there's a sense in which he's not. You say, why do you say that? Why do I want to point that out? Because the Jews in John 1, 19-20, the Jews sent priests and Levites to John the Baptist and asked him, they said, are you Elijah? And Elijah said what? Who remembers? Elijah said, I am not. But then Jesus says, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is Elijah who was to come in Matthew 11.4. And even when the angel was speaking to John the Baptist's father, he, he tells him he, the, John the Baptist, will go before his face in the spirit and power of Elijah. Malachi's prophecy had actually been fulfilled, but not literally. The Elijah prophesied by Malachi was not to be the physical flesh and blood return of this ancient prophet. John wasn't that. It was that he was going forth in the spirit and power of Elijah with the same kind of a message that Elijah, a new type of Elijah figure would come before the the Messiah arrived and would call people back. So it wasn't literal. Guys, I want to point out once again, it gets back to some of the biggest problems we have in eschatology today, doesn't it? Everybody's like, well, I interpret the Bible literally. That's good if the Bible's being literal. But if the Bible's being figurative and you interpret it literally, you'll be as wrong as these people were about the ministry of Elijah. And that's what we get in a lot of dispensationalism, particularly today, don't we? They take things that are clearly figurative, apocalyptic language in the book of Revelation and they interpret it literally when it's figurative language. That's kind of what's happened here. But not only he already came, but Jesus says he restored all things. But also, he didn't come like they expected as a literal Elijah. He didn't restore all things like they expected either. What John restored was the true heart-deep intention of Moses' law. The tradition of the elders, they, they memorized it, they debated it, they regurgitated it all the time, but it was an abomination to God. It was filled with loopholes, excuses, 
and paths to do whatever one's wicked heart desired while at the same time appearing holy. John called them out for these perversions and baptized Jesus into his holy interpretation of the law. But Jesus comes to be baptized by John and John, he doesn't even want to do it. He says, I have need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. And Jesus answered and said, permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying, John, you preached the straight paths of the law. I agree and I'm going to immerse myself in your teachings and actually walk it out. He didn't try to keep the tradition of the elders. He walked according to John's holier interpretation and preaching of the law. And then John permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And a voice came out of heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But John didn't meet their expectation. He admitted he wasn't the reincarnation of Elijah and he didn't do miracles. So was it any wonder that they did not recognize him? Look at 12b. That's what Jesus tells them. Hey, Elijah did come and he did restore all things, but they did not recognize him. Who's this they in verse 12? It's the scribes who insist that Elijah must come first. They're, they're preaching about Elijah must come before the Messiah, and Jesus is saying, well, he did come, but they, the very people you're looking to as experts, they didn't recognize the Elijah who was to come that prepared my way when he did come. That was Jesus' main problem with them. And it was for that reason that there would be no covenant renewal but judgment. Turn with me to Matthew eleven twenty nine. I'm sorry, 9 through 24. Jesus says, speaking of John the Baptist, the people have gone out to see him in the wilderness as a curiosity. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you, one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. He's the final prophet who would, who would point you back to the prophets and the law and usher in the time of the Messiah. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you and you didn't dance, and we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe unto you, Jewish city Horazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained until this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Elijah, the forerunner, came. They rejected him. Jesus, the Messiah, the actual Son of Man, came. They rejected him. As different as they were, they rejected both of their identical messages and judgment was coming. Worse judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah, the height of wickedness in the Old Testament. There's going to be no covenant renewal. The scribes got it all wrong. They, they think that they're going to be the recipients of a literal Elijah and receive a different Messiah. No, the real, the, the fulfillment was John the Baptist. They rejected him and there is no kingdom for them. And what happened? They did to him whatever they wished. Here we have another slightly difficult phrase in this text. Did the scribes kill John the Baptist? That, that is what did whatever to him, whatever they wished to him seems to imply 
But it was Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, that had him beheaded, right? Tells us that in Matthew 14. So what gives? Many people recognize John as a prophet to the point that Herod wanted to put him to death but feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But the people did not bear the political clout that the scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees did. And the religious leaders had distanced themselves from John. He had come at them often, calling them to repentance, calling them snakes, generations, and vipers, and things like that. So they refused to endorse his ministry or align themselves with him in any way. When Jesus asked about John the Baptist, what do they say later in, in chapter 21? Where Jesus says, uh, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they refused to answer. Right? Had the Pharisees, scribes, and chief priests aligned themselves with John, the political pressure would have been so great on Herod that he couldn't have had him arrested, more or less held him indefinitely, or ultimately murdered him. So Jesus held them accountable. There is something to the overused, the overused pithy statement, silence is violence. Guys, when we see things that are wrong out there and we see people that are being attacked unjustly and we don't stand up to their defense, we truly are guilty. And Jesus shows that right here. He lumps in the scribes and Pharisees, all these religious leaders, with Herod who had him beheaded because had they stood up, it could have made a difference. By refusing to stand with John, Jesus held them accountable for his death. And then there's this last unexpected related element. John, or Elijah did come. They did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Jesus is bringing this full circle. Y'all got this all wrong. Yes, Elijah has to come first and the Messiah next. But it is not that there's covenant renewal as everyone expected in the ministry of Elijah. It is that they reject the ministry of Elijah first, culminating in his death, and in the same way they reject the ministry of the Messiah, culminating in his. Remember the Malachi text? Behold, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Otherwise... I will come and strike the land with a curse. They were thinking he would come and they would turn their hearts and God would relent from their judgment. But their hearts were not restored. So this awesome day of the Lord would come upon them, not to save them. He would strike the land with a curse because they didn't hear this Elijah. They're thinking Elijah's going to come, everybody's going to hear, we're going to have a final festival of booths and the Messiah's going to reign over his people Israel and Israel will reign over all the other nations of the earth. No, they rejected the Elijah and God cursed the land of Israel. And what's going to happen within that same generation just 40 years later? Not one stone is going to be left upon the other and it will all be thrown down the temple and all of Jerusalem will be trodden underfoot by the Gentiles. And we will see the Son of Man coming into His kingdom. While some of those that were standing there with Jesus would be alive to still see it. The paths laid out were walked in by one man. The paths laid out by the Elijah, by the forerunner. They were, they were walked in by one man. Jesus. He kept the law as preached by Moses. He fulfilled the conditions of the covenant. He would receive the kingdom and he would judge the covenant breakers and the kingdom would not be taken away from his people forever. He would take it away from those people, Israel, and give it to a people bearing the fruit thereof. All of this was necessary for Jesus to build his church. And then after that, they finally had understanding, verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling everybody to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Remember in chapter 3? That's what's going on, right? John the Baptist is the Elijah calling to the Jews to repent, telling them don't presume upon the fact that you're children of Abraham. God's able to raise up stone, uh, these stones to be children to Abraham. He called them back to the straight paths of the law, but did people listen? 
They didn't, they didn't listen. They didn't come into the wilderness and build these booths and have a final tabernacle, a feast of tabernacles, feast of booths. They rejected the ministry of Elijah, of the Elijah who was to come, of John the Baptist. Therefore, there was no covenant renewal. Jesus is saying they had their chance for what they're looking for. They killed the forerunner. They killed the Elijah. And they're not done. They're going to kill me as well. But guys, that's how it had to be. You know why? Because the blood of bulls and oxen could never take away sin anyway. It was always going to be the stone that the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone and it would be, this comes forth from the Lord and it's marvelous in our sight. It was always the plan of God that through the line of Abraham, the Messiah would come and would usher in a universal kingdom of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that we would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It wasn't what they expected, so they rejected it, but even the rejection was part of the plan of God. And because of that... We have an everlasting kingdom, a final sacrifice. Jesus walked in the straight paths of the law and never sinned. John's death, it couldn't have done anything, but when Jesus died, he could be our great high priest and our offering and give us forgiveness for all of our sins. And God raised him from the dead. He appeared before the Ancient of Days. And God gave him a kingdom, a dominion, that all the nations of the earth would serve him. And he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And you know what he did? He gave gifts to men. You and I, you know the gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, you've got gifts of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? And it's by these gifts that we will succeed in taking the kingdom to all of the nations of the earth. It was the plan of God. Is it not marvelous in your eyes? Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your plan. We thank you for choosing to come and die. Lord, we thank you for fulfilling every promise, every Old Testament type and shadow, that there's not a prophecy that didn't happen and it didn't happen exactly the way that you said it would. Lord, we pray that you'll guard our hearts from misunderstandings and misapplications, but Lord, we're so thankful that where we are ignorant, where we come short in our understanding or in our obedience, that we have a great sacrifice because the Son of Man died. And He rose again. Lord, thank You for the forgiveness we have. Purify us and use us in expanding Your kingdom. For Your name's sake, Your honor, and Your glory. For You are worthy. In Jesus' name, Amen.